I'm Tisha Bader, and in the news, Martin Luther King Day, remembering the iconic leader of the American Civil Rights Movement, his life, his legacy, and his achievements. Dr. King led the Civil Rights Movement from December of 1955 until his assassination on April the 6th of 1968. Well, a leading Jewish figure in that movement, who was alongside Dr. King in the fight for racial equality, was Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, renowned theologian, philosopher, and staunch civil rights activist, working with Dr. King and famously marching with him in Selma, Alabama in March of 1965, joining other civil rights leaders and clergy for voting rights. We are fortunate to have Susanna Heschel here on JBS today, a scholar in her own right. Professor Heschel is Jewish Studies Program Chair and Eli M. Black Distinguished Professor of Jewish Studies at Dartmouth College, and is a prolific author and editor and the daughter of Abraham Joshua Heschel. Susanna, thank you so much for joining us here on JBS. My pleasure. Thank you. So tell us about the unique friendship that your father shared with Dr. King, how they met and how this special bond came to be. Well, my father and Dr. King met at a conference in Chicago in January of 1963. It was a conference uh, called Religion and Race, and it was organized by the National Conference of Christians and Jews. And each of them gave a keynote lecture, and that's where they met. And what's so striking is that from the moment they met, they they bonded, they became very close and felt felt very connected to each other. Uh, and almost immediately, they started giving lectures together to various groups, colleges, and also to synagogues, groups of rabbis. Uh, and they would talk about racial justice. Uh, they also talked about the importance of Israel and the importance of freeing the Jews from the Soviet Union, which was an, an important movement in those days. Uh, and after a few years, they also started talking about the war in Vietnam. They were both opposed to the war in Vietnam uh, for many reasons. So the friendship was very close and I would add to that that Mrs. King and her children have also become good friends of mine over the years. Uh, and so I'm actually going to be with Reverend Dr. Bernice King this coming Monday in Atlanta. That's so wonderful. Honestly, you said that and I got chills because I, <laughs> I wanted to ask you if you if you were connected to them and if you were in contact with them. So that's really lovely to hear that not only are you in touch, but you'll physically be there with Dr. Bernice King. Yes. What an honor and what truly a lasting legacy uh, that your father and Dr. King left in that regard and so many others. And we'll talk about that a little more in a bit. Where would you say that passion for civil rights, because your father it seems was very passionate about this cause for racial justice, for racial equality against racism. Where did that stem from in him? Well, that's a very good question. And it's a question we might ask of the many rabbis and, and young people, young Jews who became involved in the civil rights movement very quickly and in large number. There were young Jews who participated in the Freedom Summer, as you probably know in Mississippi, um, and you may also know that three of those civil rights workers were murdered by the Ku Klux Klan that summer in 63, and two of them were Jewish. 
Um, there were also Jews and rabbis who participated as freedom riders riding buses through the South, um, and also at uh, lunch counters, for example, seeking integration to be served at a lunch counter. Uh, and then, of course, March at Selma. So some of these are rabbis, for example, who were refugees from Nazi Europe. And that's striking. My father was too. My father saw anti-Semitism firsthand, Nazi anti-Semitism, which was pervasive in Germany in the years that he lived there. He was in Berlin first as a student in 1927 to write a PhD and then continue teaching uh, until he was deported in 38. And so one element is simply knowing firsthand what anti-Semitism means, what Nazism means. And this was a response to that to say no, to stand up. And my father was dismayed that so many Christians in Germany did not stand up to the Nazis. You know, I'll just tell you in those days when my father was in Berlin, there were, there were Christians, ministers and bishops and theologians who said that the Old Testament was a Jewish book and had no place in the Christian Bible in Nazi Germany. So they literally removed it. And they said that Jesus wasn't Jewish, that Jesus was an Aryan, a German. And this is horrible. And my father came here and Dr. King was quoting from our Hebrew Bible, from the Exodus and from the prophets. My father was amazed by that. And I think that was really a sign of how ecumenical the civil rights movement was, how it brought everybody together. And that was, I think, very deeply moving. I love listening to you because you, you not only speak from a place of knowledge, but you grew up in that environment, uh, in that household where I know you, you mentioned actually in a program that we air regularly here on JBS, a speech that you gave to the Museum of Jewish History. I think it was in 2017. You talk about sitting around the dinner table where these issues were discussed and you said, they weren't necessarily from a political perspective, but from a moral perspective. There were moral questions on how someone should act. Can you give us a sense or an example of, of, of what that dinner table environment was when you were you know, a young girl and a teenager? Of course. So yes, political issues were moral issues. For example, if Dr. King spoke out against the war in Vietnam, where we were dropping napalm on children, where we were killing civilians and destroying the land for no particular understandable military or political purpose. Uh, question was, what would this do to the civil rights movement? Would, would President Johnson turn against Dr. King? What about the Congress? So was it morally the right thing to do to speak out against the war and for us to encourage Dr. King to speak out? So that was a moral dilemma. But there was another element too, and that is coming from my father's Hasidic background, my Hasidic family. How do you treat another human being? That's a religious question. That is, how I treat another person is a religious question because human beings, my father always emphasized, are the only image we have of God. That is, my father used to tease people. He would say, when does God break the Ten Commandments? And people would think, what? <laughs> and then he says, it says in the Ten Commandments, I shall not make an image of God. And yet, in Genesis, when God creates human beings, we are created in God's image. 
So we're the only image. And what does it mean to be an image of God? It means to be a reminder of God. It means to behave in such a way so that when people come to know us, they will think of God. They will be inspired religiously. How to conduct your life in that way. And so how do we treat other human beings? Racism, my father said, is Satanism, unmitigated evil. It's the opposite of being religious. You can't worship God and treat a, another human being as if you were an animal. It's unacceptable. It's not being religious. So it was a religious imperative, a moral imperative, mm. a theological imperative. So those were some of the issues that came up in my, in my home growing up. Another story you share in that program um, is a very unique way that Dr. King was greeted at a meeting held several years after the march in Selma at the Concord Hotel um, in the Catskills, which many of us remember fondly. Can you talk about that meeting and the welcome that Dr. King received when he walked into the room? Yes. So this was a gathering of the conservative movement rabbis, the Rabbinical Assembly of America. And we were at the Concord. I'm glad you remember that hotel. It was marvelous. <laughs> we used to go there for these gatherings of rabbis. And after dinner, everybody went into the main hall. And there must have been a thousand people, rabbis and, and family members. I was there that night. And we linked arms as Dr. King walked in and saying, we shall overcome in Hebrew. And Dr. King was so happy, he said, I've been all over the world and I've heard we shall overcome in so many languages, but this is the first time in Hebrew. And so it was a very special evening. And he spoke about my father and my father spoke about him. My father said, where do we find in America a sign that God has not forsaken the United States? He said, Martin Luther King is such a sign. And then not shortly after that meeting, Dr. King was assassinated uh, on April the 4th of 1968 in Memphis, Tennessee. I can only imagine the impact this must have had on your father, on your family. How did, how did he find out and what was that day like? What was that impact? Well, my father was in his study in his office at the seminary and, uh, I was at school and all the kids were sent home early because we heard that Dr. King had been shot. We were told by the, by the school and we, I came home and I telephoned my father. Yeah, he didn't know. I told him that Dr. King had been shot and he came home right away and he was very upset and worried and he, he got into bed. He had to lie down because he was so upset and I listened to the news and I heard that Dr. King had been killed. And I went into the bedroom to tell him. My father then flew to Memphis to be with Mrs. King and from there to Atlanta. And my mother and I joined him in Atlanta for the funeral. Mrs. King asked him to read a Psalm at the funeral. So we were there. Now you, you talk about being at the funeral, about having to tell your father about Dr. King's passing. I know you've met him several times um, in your house or at different events. What, what, what was he like? I mean, this is something, you know, the first thing I thought of to ask you because he is such a giant 
in our eyes and such an inspiration in this country. And I wonder what your impressions of him were um, knowing him as you did. So let me just say that I know a lot of people think that Dr. King was at our home for Shabbat meal, or there's another story that he was at our home for Havdalah, that it didn't happen. My father did invite Dr. and Mrs. King to our Passover Seder in 1968, but that then Dr. King was killed just before that, but he was never in our home. Uh, I do think it would be interesting for everybody to consider what it would be like if Dr. and Mrs. King came to our Seder. How would we perhaps present things differently or think differently, interpret differently, and what might we discuss with him? Um, I, I just would say that on a personal level, Dr. King was so kind and gentle and sweet, and I learned an important lesson from him because there were, there were several times when I met him, and there was one time when it was late. He and my father had been giving talks and then questions from the audience, and then they wanted to talk together. And I was with my father, and my father said to Dr. King, do you remember Susie? And Dr. King said, of course I remember Susie. And I thought, you know, how could he possibly remember me? I was just a kid and nobody. And he must have been exhausted at the end of the day. And yet he was kind enough to say, of course I remember Susie and make me feel good. And so I think sometimes when I'm tired at the end of the day and a little bit grumpy, I remember him and I remember how generous he was in that moment to me and gave me that little gift of his acknowledgement that means so much to me. So I would say he, he was a very special human being. And, you know, I want to just say that I find that with all of the civil rights leaders, they worked with my father, and that was a long time ago. And yet, when I meet them to this day, they're so warm and, and loving, and they hug me, and they tell me how grateful they are for my father. 60 years later, how many of us are still grateful for something that happened last week? I think that's amazing. And I want to say that to me, that's also a lesson, a religious lesson, because the training that was done in the 60s in nonviolence was not just about, you know, if somebody hits you, don't hit back. It was more than that. It was a way of being, a way of thinking, a way of relating to other human beings. It was a way of being generous mm. and of experiencing gratitude and conveying gratitude. They spend months and months studying, studying the Bible, thinking about religion, thinking about the human personality and working hard that instead of getting angry, feel compassion for the other person. Dr. King emphasized that too. He didn't say bad things about his opponents, even the, the worst of them. He said, this is a human being also. And we have to treat this person in a way, perhaps by being kind, that person will be transformed. And to me, that's very Jewish. It feels very Hasidic too. That's one of the teachings I have from my uncle, the Kapitchenitzer Rebbe. So you know, if somebody doesn't treat you properly, you don't retaliate. No, on the contrary, you show the generosity Show them this is how one should be in the world. And so I felt somehow that 
the civil rights movement and the civil rights leaders and those that I knew, and they were so wonderful. And yeah, they felt to me very Jewish and very Hasidic. They had that spirit. That's really beautiful. I'd love to talk for a minute about the march in Selma, because first of all, that photograph is so iconic. It speaks to so much, that image um, that is referred to over and over again of your father marching with Dr. King, along with other clergy and civil rights leaders. Can you talk a bit about what that experience that day was like for your father and some of the things that he he said and wrote afterwards of his impressions? Yes. So the march in Selma, you know, this was the third march. There had been an attempt to march two weeks earlier uh, that resulted in what is now called Bloody Sunday. Uh, there was a march out of Selma over the Pettus Bridge, which is curved. And when the marchers came to the top, to the crest of the bridge, they looked down and there were the Alabama State Police wearing gas masks and on horses and they charged the marchers. Now we have in this country the right to demonstrate peacefully. It was the state police who rioted that day. And then two weeks later, the movement received permission to have federal troops and protection, permission from a federal judge, and the march was to take place. And at this point, President Johnson was in full support of voting rights and it said in a speech, we shall overcome. Uh, that was a very important moment. So the march in Selma in some sense was also a kind of celebration. Mm. Uh, and that my father wanted to participate even though of course we were afraid. And my father received a telegram on Friday afternoon asking him to come to Selma. And that was a very nervous Shabbat. After we made Havdalah Saturday night, my mother and I went down the elevator with my father. We lived in New York City on the eighth floor of a building. And my father kissed me goodbye and I, I cherished the moment. I held it because I wasn't sure if he would come back. And I remember distinctly, walked into the taxi and left for the airport. When he came back from the march, he said that it was a very moving experience. He said it felt like walking with Hasidic Rebbe's in Europe. He felt there was something holy in the march. And he said, I felt my legs were praying. Because, you know, it was a march for justice. And the prophets say that Israel will be redeemed by justice. And that was so important to my father too. And my father had just published a book was his dissertation originally uh, for his PhD in Berlin, but then he expanded it and translated it into English and it was published, Book on the Prophets. And the civil rights leaders, Andrew Young told me, they all kept a copy of the paperback in, their, in the back pocket of their pants and they had it with them when they went to prison and they read from it, it was so inspiring. So yeah, it was prophetic for my father, prophetic experience. Amazing. And you mentioned earlier that you'll be alongside Dr. King's daughter, Dr. Bernice A. King, for Martin Luther King Day, and that you've maintained this relationship with the King family over the years, which I think is really 
like you said, that is also a testament to what the two of them, the relationship they had, the example they set, the the inspiration they left on other people. What has that relationship been like over the last 50 years has it been um, for you and, and the King family? It's been a lot of warmth and Mrs. King came to speak at the Shloshim for my father. Wow. And afterwards she said, I want you to meet my daughter Yolanda. And so she arranged that and we met and we gave lectures together. And she unfortunately passed away at a young age. And Mrs. King, I happened to meet when I was with a civil rights group that was led by Congressman John Lewis in Alabama for several days. And we were we visited the church where Dr. King had been in Montgomery. And Mrs. King came in and I had my, my older daughter, Gittel, was just a year old. She was sleeping in the baby carriage. And I remember Mrs. King really wanted to see the baby. And and that was so warm and so sweet. And yes, I've been with the with the King children uh, on various occasions and I treasure those relationships just as I uh, treasure the times that I have spent with so many others. Andrew Young has just been wonderful, so warm, but Reverend C.T. Vivian, who passed away, was to me a holy person. There was something about him that was holy. And I did a program with his son a few months ago. Uh, And yeah, Jesse Jackson was full of enthusiasm always and energy. And I also correspond sometimes with one of his children uh, so yes, the the relationships continue. I hope they will always continue and and broaden. Uh, but I, I think we all feel that there was something so special in our parents and how they had such close, warm relationships. Remarkable. Talk a bit about your obviously your your many accomplishments. I only mentioned a few in my introduction of you, but you're choosing to go into academia, um, to study, to teach. I imagine that was largely inspired by your father. Did you also have aspirations to become a rabbi at the time? And and what sort of led you on this path? Uh, Well, I would say that both the teachings of my father and Dr. King were very inspiring to me. And uh, actually, made me fall in love with the Bible in a way that school didn't, should I say. And so I'm grateful to them. And I I wanted to become a professor of Hebrew Bible, but then I felt that the scholarship on the Hebrew Bible was asking the wrong questions and going in the wrong direction. And that was not what I wanted to pursue. There was an absence of attention to the poetry of the Bible, the poetic, the beauty and the inspiration of the Bible and too often questions about the the origins of a word or uh, how a particular verse should be reconstructed, things like that, that really were not, I felt very important. So yes, I decided to study also the history of the scholarship. Why do scholars write the way they do about the Bible, about Judaism, about Hasidism? That's what I'm interested in, in, in my scholarly work. And that looks mostly at 19th and early 20th century, mostly European scholarship. And so sometimes, for example, some scholars wrote about the prophets as people who lost consciousness and were writhing on the ground and they were ecstatics. And so 
uh, it's, it's, it's something that they couldn't appreciate. They, one of them, one of the great sociologists of religion, Ernst Trelsch, said that the prophets came from little villages. Essentially, they were sort of country bumpkins. And then they come into urban areas where there's a, a ruler and there's an army and an economy. And what do they say? They say you should beat your swords into plowshares. Isn't that ridiculous? That's not what a serious person would do. So he was very dismissive and denigrating and obviously not understanding the power of the prophetic tradition, how important it is and how inspiring. And that's what Dr. King gave us as well. Before we go, I just want to get back to that special friendship that your father shared with Dr. King. As you mentioned, not only was it so special and inspiring at the time, it continues to inspire to this day. And do you see it? How do you see that happening in our world right now? Do you think it can help set a tone for Black Jewish relations today? How do you see that continuing to inspire and show us how these relationships can actually be in the, in the real world? So I think that's a very important question that you're asking. You're, you know, I, I would just point out that in the 1960s, there was a Martin Luther King and there was also Malcolm X. And in some sense, there's something Jewish there as well, because they had very different approaches. Malcolm X was angry, angry at racism. And Dr. King was promoting love and redemption. And in a sense, it does remind me of Passover and the Seder, because what do we do? We remember on the one hand, the suffering of enslavement to Pharaoh. And at the same time, we celebrate the liberation from slavery. So we have both the suffering and the freedom. And, and so too, I, you know, I, it makes perfect sense to me. We have to be able to hold both in our minds that we were slaves and that we are free. And I understand if I were black in America, yes, I would be angry. And I would also want the kind of transformative love that Dr. King spoke about. How can I change things and redeem white America? I, what, what I take away from the civil rights movement is that we as white people in America have a challenge. How is it possible that a white person could look at a black person and, and treat that person in an unfair way? How is it possible that a, a black person should be murdered by a policeman on the streets? What does that mean? Now, there are some scholars, really interesting work has been done by a South African philosopher, Tendai Sidhole, a book called The Black Register. He asked the question, do these white police look at a black person and think this is not a human life? What goes on inside their mind? Is it possible that they think this is not a human being? And I'm afraid that for some white people, that is the case. And we need to think about that. We need to think about why somebody would think that. Of course, it goes against everything that we stand for as Jews. What the Bible teaches us, God is either the creator of all human beings or, or nobody. My father always emphasized that, of course. So it is, in fact, a, an, an insult, a denial of God, not to accept that God has created everyone, all people. So the legacy, I would say, is that we still have much work to do in this country as white people, as Jewish people, as human beings. <laughs> and it's a challenge. But of course, that's also, in some sense, to be what, what Judaism is about. Judaism is, comes to us as a challenge. 
Not something that says everything is fine, you're great. No. Challenge. We have something, we have to do some, some self-exploration of our souls and our hearts and our minds. We need to do that. And that's part of being a Jew. Think about it. We do that in Yom Kippur. We need to do that all year round. How can I improve myself, make myself better? Because certainly a person who looks at a, a white person looks at a black person and says, this is not human life, then that white person is no longer acting as an image of God, a reminder of God, a witness to God. No. So how can I live up to this great mandate of my life to be a witness to God's presence? So that to me is the legacy, a very Jewish legacy, a very profoundly religious legacy. Well, thank you so much, Susanna, for, for sharing something that is deeply personal to you and also that we, as, as a human beings, feel belongs to us, this incredible relationship between your father and Dr. King, the legacy they leave behind, and uh, the hope for the future. Thank you so much for joining us here on JBS. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Susanna Heschel is Jewish Studies Program Chair and Eli M. Black, Distinguished Professor of Jewish Studies at Dartmouth College. We thank her for joining us today on JBS. And thanks, as always, to our director, Sloan Copeland, Managing Director, Dara Golub, our Transmission Manager, John McDevitt, Technical Manager, Michael Paley, and Producer, Carol Lilienthal. And thank you for watching In the News. I'm Tisha Bader. Be well.